0: Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food and beyond find us at heritageradionetwork.org
2: welcome to meant to be eaten i am your host andrea ween And today on the show, we are talking about soul food and African-American culture as it's spread to places like the U.S. and Brazil. Calling in on the phone, we have Fred Opie, author of the soul food book, Hogs and Hominy, and professor of history and foodways at Babson College. And in the studio with me, I have Adedoyan Tariba, a professor of architectural history at Pratt Institute here in New York. Gentlemen, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrea.
2: Fred, let's start with you and lay the groundwork for the whole show today. What is soul food? How do you define it?
4: Soul food, uh, I would break it down into the best way to explain African American uh, cuisine. It's the cuisine that evolved out of uh, cultural survival from Africa, dispersions to different parts of the Americas, and the really, I guess, when many different African cultures from West and Central Africa came together, and then also the mix of influences from Native Americans first, and then Europeans that all came uh, to this place that we call North America during the colonial period. So it's, it's an amalgamation. It's a creolization. When two things come together, nothing is ever the same, and that nothing, in terms of African Americans, what we now call today soul food.
2: I think when people say soul food these days, sometimes we think it's southern food. So what do you see as the real difference between soul food and southern food? Uh,
4: Very little. Uh, There's a huge debate, depending on who you talk to. Uh, Essentially, I look at uh, people who grew up in the South. If you were African American, you ate a certain type of food, depending on what your class is. If you were white American in the South and your family was wealthy enough to hire a cook, more often than not that cook would have been an African American and you would grow up you grew up eating that person's food. If you read the memoirs of people like uh, Bill Clinton and see the experience that they had growing up and the greatest influence that they had would have been the black cooks. The same thing with Lyndon Johnson and what his kids grew up eating. I don't think there's much difference. Some people would say uh, when African Americans were eating in their own homes, it might be a bit spicier than their neighbors around the corner or on the other side of town. But I don't see a whole lot of difference. And, you know, if we did the, the Coke and Pepsi taste and I gave you a, a plate of uh, greens and, and fried chicken and it was made by, by somebody that was quote unquote white and quote unquote black. They're both from the South. Would one be able to tell the difference? I would argue if they're both good cooks, no.
2: Hmm. We're going to come back to this whole idea, and I, I want to talk a little bit about if soul food's gentrifying, but I want to get doyen in on the conversation. So you're originally from Nigeria, but you studied and worked abroad in Brazil where you encountered many of the foods that you had in childhood. Can you talk about the experience of finding some of these familiar foods, such as a carrage, if I'm saying that correctly, yes, in these true. unfamiliar places? <clears throat>
3: Yes, um, it's interesting how um, the field of architectural history has brought me to um, the history of cuisine. And, um, you know, in order to answer your question, I want to touch upon um, something that Fred said about um, survivals and amalgamation of, um, uh, whether it's West African or southern african or what have you um, food traditions in the americas so in the course of my architectural research um, i encountered um, a pleasant surprise as you said a karajer which is actually the phrase um, one phrase is actually from two yoruba words and i am actually a native speaker of the yoruba language it's a very, as you know, it's a very big ethnic group in southwest Nigeria. And um, akaraje is a combination of two words known as akara and je. The latter word je means to eat in Yoruba. And akara is the name of the dish itself, which, which is a fried. It, it's um, it's a deep fried. Um, it's raw beans that um, have been put in a blender and um, been blended with uh, tomatoes and, um, and peppers and onions and so the blend is taken with um, a big spoon and then deep fried in this very um, large black pan. Um, if you go to Salvador in Bahia, where I did a lot of my architectural research, um, it so happens that there are these ladies, they're called the Bayanas. They, are, they dress, um, very beautiful women, they dress um, in what um, looks like Victorian um, dresses and they sell this on the street. They actually fry um, this from, from the street. So it, the story goes, one of the stories anyways, goes about the origin of Akarajer is that uh, it goes that, um, um, that uh, the slaves um, would um, sell Akarajer on the streets And they would say, akarajé, come and eat akara, akarajé. And so akarajé became akarajé. Mm. And so it was just uh, quite a pleasant surprise. But I also want to say, uh, sort of to add to what Fred said, he used the words both survival and amalgamation. And uh, sometimes I think that it's a very, what he said was very profound in the sense that um, sometimes when something survives, it doesn't survive in the original state. And the thing I discovered about Akarajer is that it's different from Akara in Nigeria. And it's, it's, it's bigger, it's more of a sandwich, whereas the Akara was um, smaller in scale to this day. It's made and it's, it's about the same size. But um, the Brazilian... Um, renditions, uh, survival, as it were, amalgamation, is not only bigger, uh, the cooks cut it into two like a sandwich and they put prawns inside and some um, a peppery substance as well so you can eat it like a sandwich.
2: In your opinion, then, is one of them, quote-unquote, more authentic?
3: That's a very good question. I mean, I think my response, people would... would um, you could probably even get a heated, for lack of a better phrase, and and I hear Fred laughing, a heated debate on that. I think where I fall um, is that uh, in that you know debate is that authenticity itself is. Um, I think one has to problematize and really interrogate that word. Because I think sometimes when people think about that, they think of um, a creator, a single author of something. But um, what something like Akarajer illustrates is that people take things and make it their own. And so I would sort of definitely evade that debate and say that both Akara and Akarajer are um, different and unique um, unique dishes um, with some relationship.
2: Fred, when you think about this and taking foods from different places, obviously soul food has such a rich history. How do you think about this type of food or foods um, like a as an indicator of social position or this cultural identity when they've been taken from one place to another?
4: Well, in terms of cultural identity, I think foods like uh, a they speak to the movement of people, and they speak also to one's economic status. Now, the fact that this was a, a survival food in one place and then a familiar food in another place is, uh, is, is interesting to me. But the, the idea that, um, you know, when I, when I first did my book tour for and Harmony i was convinced that many things were distinctively african-american and then when i went out and did talks, people would stand up who looked nothing like me in pigmentation nor in origin and said we did that too and so what i began to understand is that some of the things that we think are authentically african-american were authentically rural that is people who came from farm countries and this is what you eat in that type of cultural milieu so it, it identifies not just one's complexion or culture, hmm. but it also identifies one's topography. That is, where do you grow up hmm. and what does the surroundings allow you to produce that you can consume and survive off of.
2: Anna Dwayne, you teach a course on the architecture of informal economy, which explores the architecture of temporary housing, slums, and what's designed to be temporary, how it comes to represent something bigger and more significant, which I think ties into what Fred was just saying, the sense of cultural identity. But how does food tie into that?
3: Well, that's interesting. Um, Well, actually, um, one of my students is... um, She may be... um, well, so in other words, I was about to say I, i'm I'm pausing because i 'm wondering whether I should broadcast her research or not, but um, it's interesting that uh, she wants to um, explore basically um, how different um, different slums um, how certain dishes are specific to different slums, and how the smells of those um of those dishes within those slums um, serve as markers of the, the, the areas that they are. So in other words, the slums are not just known by their architecture, whether it's the favelas or what have you in Rio, or, um, you know, some of the other, you know, you know, Victorian slums. We just, I just actually taught the class yesterday and we were looking at, um, you know, um, slums in Victoria, London in the 19th century. And how, um, you know, certain immigrants, the Irish and what have you, populated a lot of the slums in London. But, you know, I challenged her as um, because of her background as a chef. She's actually a chef um, and she is um, closely tied with this show. Um, It's uh, our
2: producer, Coralie, for everyone.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And it so happens that she has this wonderful idea to um, explore part of Chinatown in New York and I, I you know I challenged her to really think about the cuisine and how um, you know the the history of that settlement you know of the Chinese and the immigration in New York um, and w- what architecturally their settlements looked like uh, there could be a conversation there with the various smells um, because you know architectural form is not just which is a huge concern of mine Um, architectural form is not just a, not just embodies, it's not the only thing that embodies a locale, you know, smells, you know, to um, embody, you know, particular locales. So that's how I would connect them.
2: And I think to moments in time, Fred, I know you've done a lot of work around different events and movements um, as they relate to food and soul food particular. So slavery, the great depression, uh, civil rights movement, What types of effects do you think that those events have on our food landscape?
4: Well, you know, you talked about identity. And um, there are certain foods that become identified with certain movements. Uh, So you mentioned uh, in the conversation the Irish came up. Well, if you think about the Irish, every culture, I think every people have foods that are associated with them from their historical past. So the Irish people think about the potato famine. Uh, when African-Americans, in, and you talk about the civil rights movement, I, I think one of the things that comes up and first in my mind is fried chicken. Why? Because it is one of those foods that is very portable, it's one of those foods that you could make. So if you look at, for example, the March on Washington that happened in 1963, uh, people who were traveling from long distances to get to Washington, D.C., if they were traveling by bus or if they were traveling by train during the Jim Crow South, you would put your lunch in a, in a shoebox. And that shoebox almost always had fried chicken in it, a slice of pound cake, a piece of fruit, and then some salt and pepper and wrapped up in a napkin. Well, those were all dishes that were portable, that you could travel well. So many times when people thought about activism, one of the first things that would come up in, in terms of food conversations, would be fried chicken and pound cake. They were just became associated with that. So I, I think it depends on the movement you're in. Hmm. Occupy Wall Street that I went and did field work on, when that happened, one of the things that uh, I noticed is what became most associated with the food made by the, the members of the, uh, the, the food pantry there. Well, anything that was donated to that movement. And so there's certain foods that would become associated. One of them... Would not only occupy Wall Street, but also if you look at Tahrir Square and the uh, the protests that happened in Egypt with pizza, because what activists were doing is connecting with local pizza parlors, and it would allow you in New York to call up, put an order in with your debit card, support the movement by paying for a pizza, and then that local pizza shop would make that delivery to Tahrir Square. Same thing happened. So I think it depends on the movement and what what. Food is used to sustain that movement, which is one of my arguments: is that food can start a movement, but food can also sustain a movement.
2: That's so interesting, and I had no idea about uh, the pizza. That's it's kind of incredible that I think the internet, you know, has been able to facilitate something like that and really change a lot of what people are eating on the ground. Have you seen Black Lives Matter and the current movements of our day that we're in right now uh, impacting these foods and, and food? Sustaining these movements.
4: You know, I have not seen foods associated with Black Lives Matter, but I think it's just a matter of taking the time and starting to do the research because most of uh, the protests that I've seen. I mean, if you're going to have any 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 kind of serious protest, it takes time. It's uh, it's a commitment to being there to organize it, being there to be a presence. And you can't have a movement with presence without having a way to to feed people. I, you know, I tell people that I live here in, in the Boston area and I lived for a long time on the Boston Maritime uh, you know, running on you know, the running route and neighbors all brought out food and beverages, would be orange slice or whatever, to sustain the runners. And in Black Lives Matter Angels Movement, if they're out there for a long time in the street, they have to be sustained with food. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time of looking through uh, photos on Facebook or articles or oral histories that you're going to start to see what people were consuming while they're on the front lines with Black Lives Matter.
2: I'm Adrienne, and you are listening to Meant to be Eaten. We are talking about the movement of soul food and African-American culture across the globe, and we will be right back after a word from our sponsors.
0: I'm Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind. And no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte. And it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at, at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. it's very hard. It has a certain porosity and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing. But very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely 3, 4, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you, (laughs) you know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones and it comes out. We don't lose anything and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling, whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash
1: podcast.
2: You're listening to Meant to Be Eaten. I am your host, Andrea Ween, and we are in the studio today with Doyen Teriba and Fred Opie. We are talking the movement of soul food and African-American culture across the globe. During the break, uh, Adoyan and I were speaking about how these foods of survival can sometimes be a recovery of the past. Want to talk a little bit about that?
3: Yes. And um, I had this conversation with uh, Coral Lee in one of our classes recently, but it so happened I'll I'll relate it this way as an anecdote. So I was on the hunt literally for a carajer and my Portuguese, I wasn't very fluent in Portuguese then and so I approached a lady at a kiosk in Salvador and you know with my hands motioning and mentioning a caragé, a carajer and she vigorously just shook both of her hands to indicate that she did not have a caragé and then she just said one word and the word was abara. And I had no clue what abara was, but I motioned to her to bring it out. And it so happened it was a dish I instantly recognized um, from Nigeria. It was wrapped in banana leaves, and it was also made out of um, beans. But instead of frying a, 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 a raw bean blend, the, the, the raw bean blend was um, steamed. It was put in a banana leaves that were shaped like a funnel, open-ended, and then the blend was poured inside and it was wrapped. And then several of those are put in a pot and they are steamed and it becomes this solid, very delicious. Sometimes the dishes, Abara, um, are embedded with um, sausage or fish or boiled, um, a boiled egg. Now, this is the interesting thing. In Nigeria, that dish today is known as moi moi. If you go to a place like Lagos... Um, it's only known by Mboimoy. Boy. And I was so shocked, you know. And But then on um, further reflection, and also actually not really reflection, let, let's be honest. I was talking to um, a Yoruba scholar who, who was resident at the time in Salvador. He said that Abara, the Brazilian term for it, is actually a transformation of the archaic name for that dish in southwest Nigeria that the Yoruba called that dish Abare. And so it, it so happened that the slaves who took the dish abare to um Salvador, they somewhat preserved that rendering of the dish. And that rendering for the most part um was lost in a place like Lagos and it took upon another name moi, moi now the scholar also told me that if you that in some um, you know villages and towns in the hinterland in southwest nigeria you can encounter the usage of that of the older term but this is just an example of how in the migration you know in the evolution of this dish the evolution what came with it was a commitment um, a nostalgia a commitment to a homeland and it's in many ways it's as if the people in Salvador retained or guarded that history you know in linguistic you know that that combines the you know you know food history and linguistic history they, they, they guarded and kept that um, you know, and in its um, migration, in its dislocation, that um, that dislocation, that very dislocation of migration, um, safeguarded that. And whereas in the homeland, it was not so.
2: It's almost like a time capsule in yes. a different place yes. that was surprising for you to uncover, but yeah. I'm sure also, in a way, comforting yes. to find that piece of home away from home. Yes. Something also that we had been speaking about was when people who maybe are born um, in a different place, so an Amer- a Nigerian family, uh, um, American born, they may seek out restaurants from their homeland because it creates a way to connect.
3: Yes. And uh, Fred, you were talking about, you know, you and um, Jer, um were talking about um, Black, Lives, Black Lives Matter and movements and how food may or may not, you know, embody, come to embody, um, you know, an episode in history, you know, uh, politically and what have you. And I couldn't help but think in a similar, um, in a related context of my own experience um, living in Brooklyn and going to a Nigerian restaurant in Brooklyn to, um, you know, eat dishes that, you know, Um, because of lack of the ingredients around me, um, they're just hard to prepare. And so there's a way that that, um, I wouldn't call it a movement, but I guess in some sense, it's a kind of tacit uh, movement to recapture, you know, um, through the tastes, through the very tastes. Of course, that Nigerian restaurant is much more than that. It's, you know, the owners use the space as a way to either play Nigerian music or, um, you know, show a a film here and there. But in other words, uh, for people who uh, may be of um, Nigerian ancestry, who may have never, ever gone to Nigeria, you know, their parents came, um, the food becomes this way of connecting, with the homeland that's, yeah, in their imaginations.
2: Dan Pashman, who hosts The Sporkful, came on the show a few weeks ago and they did an entire series called Your Mom's Food. And one of the episodes focuses on adopted children in America and how the food is still such a a draw for the children and how much more connected they feel to their homeland and their culture when they can eat the foods that they were born with. I want to switch gears a little bit and get your opinions on. There was an article recently on The Atlantic called The Future is Expensive Chinese Food, which took a long look at the idea that there's this global hierarchy, hierarchy of taste. So essentially, the more powerful and richer the inhabitants of a place, the more likely its cuisine will command higher prices. So we look at Japanese versus Chinese. And then this article also mentions that nearly all cuisines with the highest check prices are ones that are generally associated with whiteness. So I'm interested, Fred, we'll start with you first, to get your thoughts on this theory and how we might think about that in the context of African-American or soul food.
4: Mm. Uh, it's interesting. I had a, uh, a graduate student from the, I believe it was the Columbia School of Journalism, the graduate program, call me up, and she's doing a project on gentrification through the lens of food in Harlem and how there are restaurants that are in many ways, uh, I don't know if you say hijacking or appropriating, I think that's the, probably the more appropriate term to our, that they're appropriating these foods and, as you just said, raising the price for them as the neighborhood has changed and the uh, the rents have gone up. So the, some of the same dishes are now uh, from mom-and-pop stores uh, restaurants that were kind of on the walls to now they're in uh, white tablecloth establishments run by people that don't look like the original folks that they cook these dishes and the price is twice as much Um, it is a pretty amazing thing but isn't that true about all foods Mm -hmm. you know we talk about french cuisine Mm -hmm. and the history of french cuisine is the history of poor people in the streets of france taking foods out of the garbage of the elites who were eating high in the hog and throwing away the parts of the hog that were low, like trotters and intestines, and coming up with all kinds of ways to slow-cook these very difficult cuts of meat to make them palatable. And now, many centuries later, we're going to a French restaurant eating the same thing and paying a lot of money for them. So I don't, I don't think this is anything new. I think it is the, the price of gentrification when it comes to culinary taste.
2: Yeah, I actually was just having this conversation right before we came on the air today with someone. I think the issue that many people have is that when those establishments set up shop in a place like Harlem, then then those mom and pop shops aren't benefiting from the influx of money and wealth that's coming into the area. And that's the problematic piece. Less so that maybe someone is cooking from a culture that's not their own and exposing people to it, but more so that they... Aren't paying homage to the people who came before them, and and are actually maybe even putting them out of business in some instances.
4: You know, one of the interesting things along that same line is that I found, um, and I'll give you an example of a restaurant in Baltimore, right around the corner from Pimlico Raceway, and it's it was it's called Lake Trout. It's still there, but I grew up uh, as a college student going to this place, and it didn't matter what time of the day you went. Lake trout had a line going out the door with great, quote-unquote, soul food. It didn't say soul food, on, it just said lake trout, but, you know, we would call it soul food. And it was fried fish that, that would be deep fried, and it, and it wasn't actually trout. It was a different type of fish, but they just called it trout, just kind of a term. They would, they would deep fry whole fish that were deboned, and then they'd, they'd wrap it in, uh, Wonder Bread, and then an aluminum foil. And you get like six or seven of these fish. And then they had these uh, dinner rolls that were to die for. And you could get um, sweet potato pies that were mini pies, kind of like the uh, bean pies you could get from the Nation Islam Brothers on the street. They were these small pies, individual pies. And they had all these, you know, your typical great food that you would have on a Sunday meal, that they would sell out this place, and it was it was wonderful. So I I leave, I go off to become a professor, and then I'm back in Baltimore. And I said to my, let's go to Lake Trout, and we go back there. Now the same business has been modernized as in as far as its appearance, aesthetics are much more pleasing. The hole in the wall appearance has been made over. And the food isn't halfway as good as far as I'm concerned. No offense to the owners now, but it just wasn't the same. So when I asked the backstory, this is the backstory. This was an African American couple who ran this place, and they used it to raise their family, make a comfortable living. And particularly, I think the story is they had one daughter. I don't know if I have it right. Somebody will correct me if they hear it out. But they had a daughter, and they put her through professional school. And the last thing they wanted her to do is to come back and run that restaurant. So when they got to the age of retirement, they just sold the restaurant. So there are some times where gentrification means an uh, African-American owned and operated business is put out of business. But there's also times where people are like, look, I worked this hard. I don't want my child working like this. So now that we put that child through school, it, you know, we're moving on up like, you know, like, you know, like, like the story in, on TV. So that often happens, and people don't necessarily think about it. The parents don't want the kids to do that kind of work because they know how hard it is to work in the food industry.
2: an if you, Nigerian food is here in New York in, in some places, but it's not widespread like French food or like Vietnamese. If you saw a white chef open a Nigerian restaurant to critical acclaim and all of the bells and whistles, and it had pretty high price point on it, how would you feel?
3: Interesting. Um, quite. Um, quite frankly, I would. I would be less concerned with his identity, um, than with what um, I would think of as um, perhaps some of the other factors that may um account for the high prices because as you and fred were um talking about that restaurant in baltimore i couldn't help but think of um you know some re- like you know booker is um, in nigerian restaurants in the bed stuy area in brooklyn and the reality of um you know the prices of properties and uh, you know, the consequences of gentrification in that sense and how that um, how that has led to, um, has contributed to an increase in prices um, in order to pay rent, in order to, but also, um, you know, just taking one particular dish, for example, that the restaurant serves, um, fried snails, you know, the... Um, the, the difficulty of getting, you know, um, snails in bulk in a place like New York and the costs that come with, you know, transporting snails from um, wherever, you know. Um, I see that, so on the one hand, you know, I, you know I've, I've been in this country long enough now that I used to, when I, when I first came to this country and I would uh, maybe buy you know, um, you know, some Nigerian dish, I would do the mathematics. I'll convert the currency from dollars to um, naira, which is the currency in Nigeria. And I would just shake my head that, you know, the same thing I could get for much cheaper in uh, Nigeria. I don't do that anymore.
2: got um, depressing. <laughs> yes. Um,
3: but in other words, I, I, I've noticed, so in terms of, I would frankly the identity doesn't really bother me that it doesn't bother me at all you know i think you know nigerian cuisine should be something that everybody should share just like any other cuisine you know we we all do this um um, but in terms of the um in terms of the economy in terms of uh you know things that uh gentrification and gender you know um that's where i think so the factors that i I see how that actually um in some cases also influences the 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 taste of the food as well so like if you have um because of where you're staying because because um the uh restaurants it's it's a fantastic restaurant i eat there a lot suffice it to say and so this is not a criticism of the restaurant. But the reality is that it's in New York and there are certain vegetables that are grown only in Nigeria. And, you know, and I used to prepare, you know, different vegetable soups and stews and, you know, um, substitutes have to be made because of the fact that this um, restaurant um, uh, operates out of Brooklyn, you know, in, and never that, you know, so so in other words, I... Sort of long-winded answer, but I see, I see some other factors. Uh, identity doesn't bother me at all, but just the other factors with gentrification, uh, the reality of uh, making ends meet, and but then you know, even in the, you know, the sizes and all of that of the dishes, you know, it's interesting. All of that is quite interesting.
2: Fred, in the U.S., where ingredients are available for chefs who are cooking soul food how do you see this issue of african-american chefs versus white chefs and the the level that they've all been elevated to play out
4: uh, i'm i'm going to answer this and then i'm going to have to jump because i have another commitment that's going to start shortly um, i think uh, the same way that women have been marginalized as professional chefs in the industry similarly is the case for black and brown people and, and i think it's the same thing in food media. I mean, if you look at the outlets in food media, whether it be radio, podcast, TV shows, we don't control any of them as black and brown people. And as a result, it's the same old networks of recycling uh, people that you know and you feel comfortable with, that you went to uh, cooking school with, or you went to journalism school. So I, I think You know, chefs, and opportunity for black chefs in the restaurant. And I've talked to quite a few people, and uh, it's a very similar story to women except for the sexual harassment. There's an harassment, but it's racial and identity. And the thing that's that's crazy about it is that most of the restaurant, the the back end of restaurants are, you know, sous chefs and down are, uh, you know, are black and brown people and most increasingly brown people. I mean, as I said to people, when's the last time you actually had a pizza made by somebody that doesn't speak Spanish in in New York? Probably not in a long time. But yet uh, very few people who who manage and own these restaurants give black and brown people the opportunity to have the title chef. And I think it's a travesty, and I think people need to start calling it out.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Well, gentlemen, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time today. If people want to find your book, Fred, stay in touch with you online, how can they do that?
4: Real simple, fredopi.com. There's links to my podcast, my blogs, and my books all on there. I'm pretty active on uh, Twitter as well as Facebook, and I welcome questions and comments and suggestions uh, for uh, future topics of discussion. I think this was a great one and I I really appreciate you having me on with you.
2: Great, thanks so much, Fred. Doyen, if people wanted to get in touch with you.
3: So yes, uh, I teach in the History of Art and Design department at Pratt. They can send me an email. Um, That's the best way. I would love to hear um, just comments and um, even just really continue this conversation um, that links um, food and architecture together. Um, I also want to thank Fred for such a wonderful conversation, and you as well, Andrea.
2: Thank you so much, and thank you t- for listening to Meant to Be Eaten. I am your host, Andrea Wein and don't forget, you can listen to the show, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Meant to Be Eaten. Until next time.